Tonight's reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Please stand with me as we read God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, buddy. Well, it's been said several times tonight but it is so good to see you. It is so good to be with you. We've missed, uh, missed you all, as I know you've missed being here, and it is, um, it is so, it brings so much joy to my heart to see you. Um, man, I, I was talking to somebody uh, a couple weeks ago, and they were asking, uh, you know, what studio we'd been using to record the sermons, and my response to that is, first, we must be doing something right if you think we're recording it in the studio, um, but, but in actuality, what we've been doing, at least what I had, what I had been doing was sitting in my car, uh, with the recorder propped up on my steering wheel preaching uh, by myself. And so it is strange to be in front of people again. It's really weird. I'm a little intimidated, if I'm honest. It's a little weird to be here. So, uh, but it is, <laughs> I was stopped. That's a good point. I didn't, you, you don't drive and preach. Um, but but um, it is, it is so good to see you, and I'm glad you're here. My name is Jonathan Mosier, by the way. It's my, uh, my delight to open God's word with you, and it's good to see you, Disciples Church. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Philippians chapter 1. I want to remember as well, um, those who are not able to be with us this evening, those who stayed away for health concerns, trying to be cautious, those sorts of things, um, just be remembering them in prayer. They're with us, I know, in spirit, uh, but we want to think about them as well. And so for those of you that are listening on, on the podcast, it's good to have you here too. Uh, we are getting into the heat of summer. We had our first real big heat snap uh, over the last couple of weeks, and so I was sitting out in my backyard, uh, I think it was 87 degrees, and I was sitting there uh, in the heat and in the sun and looking around, and, and just all of the things that happen when you're, in that, uh, when you're in that moment, you know, bugs are starting to come out, and all the flowers are blooming, and the trees are green, and all these things, and it reminded me of being a kid in the summer, and I don't know about you, but for me, as the seasons and as 
the years have progressed, it seems as if summer gets shorter and shorter and winter gets longer and longer. Like I never understood it as a kid when people talked about wanting to leave Wisconsin. I thought, why in the world would you want to leave Wisconsin? We have fish fries and we got the Packers and we've got all this amazing stuff. Why would you want to leave this place? And as I get older, I'm starting to understand it just a little bit more. I'm not leaving, but I'm just telling you, I'm starting to understand. I can sympathize a little bit with you. But as a kid, it just seemed like summers lasted forever. They just seemed to go on and on and on. And I remember one of the things that was kind of the highlight of my summer each year was going to camp. So our church um, was part of a group of churches where we'd all go to this Christian camp together, and I just loved it. I loved being away from my family for a week. I loved being able to stay up late. I loved hanging out with friends, and I loved ziplining and playing capture the flag in the dark and all the other things that you get to do at camp. I just loved the whole experience. It was the highlight of my summer. And because it was a Christian camp, one of the things that they did is each evening uh, there was a time of preaching. And so for some of you, this is a familiar experience. Maybe you went to camp as a kid or maybe you're in that season of life now where you've got kids who are going to camp. And for some of you, you've had very momentous, meaningful moments at summer camps like that. I mean, maybe God really gripped your heart and grabbed a hold of you through experiences like that. I know certainly God used some of those moments that way in in my life, but there was something else that I began to see and observe as the years went on, which uh, which is something that I started to call camp decisions. And what I mean by that is it's kind, of the, it's kind of the suburban Christian version of foxhole conversions, right? You, you're going into this place where you are constantly under a very, you're in a very emotional environment. You're hearing the preaching of God's word. Everything is set up in this very idyllic way for you to receive what's being preached. And so I remember kids making substantial, heartfelt, real decisions about what they were going to do with their lives in those moments at camp. But for some of them, the further they got away from camp life and the further those weeks went on, the less and less those decisions began to matter. The the seriousness, the earnestness with which they made those decisions began to dissipate. And I say all of this to say that often unusual circumstances will lead us to take stock of our lives and begin to make adjustments and pledges. The joy that we feel in a moment like this after being apart for 11 weeks. But once those circumstances are removed, our resolve begins to dissipate. And I tell that story as a cautionary tale so that we will begin to take stock of what God has been teaching us over the last few months. And for me, he's been teaching me all sorts of things. He's revealed that there are some things that I have held onto way too tightly. Things that I thought were very, very valuable that I've since found out really weren't all that important. And then there's been other things that perhaps I was even taking for granted where I've now realized, man, these, these things need to be a lot more important to me and I need to take them more seriously than I've been taking them. And one of those things for many of us might be gathering as a church. For some of you, prior to this last few months, you can't remember the last time that you missed a Sunday, maybe on vacation. But for some, maybe that wasn't your experience at all. Perhaps your time away from the gathering of God's people felt like freedom. Maybe it felt like an obligation had been lifted. And maybe there was very little, if anything, that you missed. But regardless of what your experience has been over the last few months, I'd invite you to consider what's going on in your heart. 
What is it telling you about your relationship with God? What is it revealing about your understanding of the church that led you to feel whatever particular way you were feeling? But what I know is that God does not intend for you to come out of this season of lockdown unchanged. That he intends for it to have a meaningful impact in our lives and in our relationship with him. So one of the things that we've talked about is wanting going forward, really wanting um, this time each year to be an Ebenezer in our life. In fact, if you notice the words of Come Thou Fount, we sang about that idea of an Ebenezer. That word comes from the Old Testament. It comes from a period in, in the life of the children of Israel where they had gone through all kinds of difficulty and all kinds of hardship and all kinds of struggle and God had faithfully, consistently taken care of them and showed his provision and his power in their lives. And so as the children of Israel stopped, they they put down a stone and they called it an Ebenezer, a place of remembrance, a time to remember God's faithfulness. See, we don't want to lose sight of what it is that we've missed out on these last few months. And also keep in mind that if the church is the body, it is still not back to full strength. So some people aren't able to be back. They need to stay away as a precaution. Others are more than ready for life to return back to normal, which is something that seems ever more difficult as the days go by. But let's continue to extend grace to one another. Let's continue to extend grace around these areas where we may have disagreements or differences of opinion. And let's continue to strive to outdo one another in love. So our hope is that as things potentially start to feel normal once again, we'll remain vigilant and thankful for the gift that God has given us in being part of his church. And that's why we want to look tonight at Philippians chapter one. So all of that was introduction. This is gonna be long, all right? Because in the text that we read tonight, what we find is the loving pastoral heart of Paul for the church of Philippi. And so I want to read to you just a brief section from Philippians 1. Here's here's what's written for us. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. See, as Paul writes to this church that had cared for and loved him, what we find is that this church that he'd planted had a unique place in his life. His spirit was stirred in thinking about them. He says, whenever I think about you, my affections are drawn to thankfulness and to joy and to love. And understand, this is more than just sentimentality. He cites two specific reasons why this church had such a special place in his heart. He mentions why his feelings are so strong for them. So first he mentions in verse seven, you are fellow partakers of grace. See, Paul's relationship with the Philippian church was unique for a lot of reasons. Not only because he planted it, but because of the way that church was planted. There was a passion he had for them that was unique in his relationship, even with the other churches that he planted. It seemed to run a bit deeper in his heart. See, the church of Philippi had a very unique beginning. 
And we find this story in Acts chapter 16. We won't read it, but we'll just walk through some of the ideas. In Acts 16, we're introduced to Paul and Silas on their missionary journey, finding their way into Philippi, this first European church. And so as they walk into the city, they see a group of women sitting together having a conversation. And they begin to approach these women and and begin to talk about the love of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is, in fact, God, that he gave himself for mankind, that that he compassionately cared for his people and gave himself fully. They talked about the resurrection. They talked about all of the details of his life. And there was a woman sitting among that group named Lydia, a very wealthy woman, a Gentile woman, but one who was a follower of God. And as she's hearing them talk for the very first time in her life about this person, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit grips her in a unique way. She responds to the message that Paul and Silas are are sharing. She declares her love and her allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. She gets baptized and immediately upon her baptism, she turns to Paul and Silas and says, why don't we begin to meet at my house? I'll open up my house and we can begin to have people in and we can begin to have conversations. We can tell other people about Jesus. And you have the birth of the church in Philippi. So just a few days later, as Paul and Silas are out once again preaching and proclaiming the word of God, they're, they're declaring the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, and a, a young woman, a young slave girl, begins to follow them. And this girl was known within the community. She was a psychic. She was demon-possessed. She was messing around with divination, all kinds of strange, odd things, telling people's fortunes. And this girl who had a reputation among her community begins to follow Paul and Silas. And as they're preaching the gospel, she's standing behind them saying, this is the one true God that they're declaring. Everybody listen to what these men have to say. It's not exactly the best advertisement for a new church to have a demon-possessed psychic declaring how, how good you are. So Paul hears this, he turns to her, he casts out the demon, the girl puts her trust and her faith in Jesus Christ and instantaneously this girl's life is radically changed. This girl who had no standing in her society and no meaning in her culture, this girl who was literally physically owned by other people begins to declare her allegiance and her love for Jesus Christ. Well, her masters, upset at the fact that they have now lost a source of income in losing this girl who was telling fortunes for a living, go to the city officials and say, we've got to get rid of these men. They're coming in, they're causing all kinds of problems, they're, they're affecting our bottom line, they're riling people up, we have got to arrest Paul and Silas. And so the government officials go out and they arrest Paul and Silas and they put them into prison. And we're told that as Paul and Silas are are in this prison, literally probably just a dark hole in the ground, they begin to sing songs and hymns together. They're singing about the goodness and the grace of God. They're singing the sorts of psalms that we've just been studying for the last 10 weeks. And as they're singing, an angel comes down, an earthquake happens, the doors of this Philippian jail literally fall off their hinges and their freedom is right in front of them. I mean, they can just walk out. They can leave this prison at which they had been held unjustly and undoubtedly at one, one in which they had been mistreated. And so as they see their freedom in front of them, they're ready to leave. They hear the cry of the Philippian jailer, this man whose life was now going to be taken for losing care of his charge. 
and we're told that he was about to end his own life, and Paul in that moment makes a decision. Do I leave and take the freedom that I deserve, or do I stay and care for this man who potentially abused and mistreated him? So Paul cries out, don't, don't hurt yourself, we're, we're still here. And this man, upon hearing the words of Paul, comes to him and in brokenness says, what must I do to be saved? So think about this early church. You've got Pastor Paul, a former Jewish Pharisee, who now has a core group made up of a wealthy Gentile woman from modern-day Turkey, a formerly demon-possessed psychic, and a government-appointed prison guard. And to put all of this in perspective culturally, there were three things that any Jewish man would have been trained to pray each day when he woke up. And this is actual historically proven. Jewish men were trained upon waking up to thank God in a prayer. And what they did is they thanked God that they had not been born as a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And yet those are the core members of this Philippian church. God has a sense of humor in these things. I mean, this is a motley crew. This is a group of people who by any external standard had no reason to be together. But in the Father's compassionate conviction, he ordained that these were the people he was going to use to comprise his church. This is the radical, liberating, unfettered, unrestrained grace of God. The gospel of grace created a family out of people who had no business loving one another. See, that is the church. And through it, the world gets a glimpse of the hope that only Jesus can provide. A hope, by the way, that our world is desperately still in need of. So not only does he say your fellow partakers in grace, he goes on to say you are fellow partners in the gospel. See, this church understood the need for the gospel of grace which they had received. They understood that it needed to be proclaimed to others. They hadn't been drawn away by false teachers or by people who were better performers or better speakers. They cared for the gospel so much that they were willing to support the ministry with their own finances and possessions. That's what we find in Philippians 4.15. And they were even willing to suffer for it according to Philippians 1.28-30. And all of these experiences lead Paul to an outpouring of emotion for this church. He says in verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. And then he begins to use words that we don't expect. He uses words like heart and love and affection, emotive words. In other words, their common experience of the gospel of grace led to a change in the way that they viewed one another. And the word that's translated feel in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you, actually carries with it a sense of familial concern. This isn't just academic awareness that you've got other people who think and act and behave like you do, but there is, there is something far more deeply rooted than that. There is a familial interest as brothers and sisters. So as I thought about what does that familial interest look like, my mind went to my grandmother. 
So my grandmother passed several years ago. She was an incredibly sweet and godly woman. And my earliest memories of my grandmother were um, her kind of walking me through this, uh, this little routine that she had with all of us grandkids where, um, where, where we would say to her, I love you. And she would respond, I love you more. And then we would respond in, in kind, not possible. Now, she taught us to do that probably for a lot of reasons, right? It's sweet, and it's familial, and it's grandmotherly, and there's all, those kinds of, there's all those kinds of emotions that go along with it. But what she really wanted to communicate in doing that was that her love for us was not going to be forgotten, that her love for us was lasting. It wasn't fleeting. And this is the sense that Paul expresses to the church at Philippi. He's saying, he's saying when I look at you and I know that you understand the grace of God, and when I know that you think about God the same way that I do, and when I know that you've experienced his grace and his mercy the same way I have, it binds us together. See, Disciples Church, the only thing that can bind us together and create a radical community of believers who lay aside our preferences and our agendas for the sake of knowing and loving one another is the gospel. That's it. There is no other hope. There is no other worldview. There is nothing else that can draw together a people like this. And the very fact that we usually meet in a school and we're meeting in a different building tonight, and the very fact that we're meeting at a different time of day, all of those things stand as a testament that the gathering place has precious little to do with defining a church. What defines a church is the camaraderie of redeemed sinners who are utterly dependent on the grace of God for salvation and are continually being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the generous application of his gospel. See, that's the only hope that we have as a family in this local place for spiritual longevity, for influence, for intimacy, for progress in this life. And God in his goodness gifted us with the church to provide us with that nourishment. See, Paul's understanding of that gift in the gathering of the saints is revealed in verse eight. Look what he says there, for God is my witness. Now why in the world does he say that? For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. I mean, I expect that on some level, this is what many of us have been feeling over the last several months, just a yearning to be with one another. And in all the awkwardness of trying to figure out how, how far to stand and whether or not you can hug or shake hands or do whatever it is, and by the way, extend grace in that area as well, right? And all of that awkwardness, the thing that's common in that is the desire to be with other saints. There's something that's been missing in my life for the last 11 weeks. There's something that Zoom can't replicate, as Susan mentioned. There's this camaraderie that we're longing for. It's the longing that you have when you haven't seen family for too long. And he goes on to say, I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. And Joseph Lightfoot, in his commentary on this passage, said it this way. He used these kind of very experiential words to describe it. He says, Paul's pulse beats with the pulse of Christ. His heart throbs 
with the heart of Christ. It's what led Paul to say, God is my witness of these things. He's trying to communicate to them the depth of his love and the fact that he's really feeling these things. God could be his witness because it was God's love being displayed in Paul. So John Piper said it this way. He said, Christ not only offers himself as the divine object of my joy, but he pours his capacity for joy into me so that I can enjoy him with the very joy of God. And all of that leads the church to be a unique place of joy and belonging. One of my favorite discussions about that whole idea comes from something that was written by Charles Spurgeon. He was writing about the problems of the church, and we understand that there are many. But as he's writing about the problems and the struggles and the difficulties, the brokenness uh, of people gathering together who are in fact sinners but having been redeemed, as he's writing about all of these different elements, he goes on to describe the church in all of its brokenness as the dearest place on earth. And he goes on to express the reason it's the dearest place on earth is in fact because of the church's brokenness. Because if the church was perfect, who would feel comfortable attending? If the church was perfect and you began to attend, it would no longer be perfect. But what makes the church the dearest place on earth is the fact that a broken and sinful and redeemed people gather together. See, the church is a family of imperfect people who, through Jesus, experience and express the perfect love of God. And all of this affection in Paul's heart leads him to pray for these people this way in verse nine. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So first just notice all of this affection, all of this yearning, all of this love that Paul has for these people, what does it lead him to? It leads him to prayer. See, prayer, in some sense or another, is the evidence of love in our life. It's the evidence that there is a communication and an ongoing care for God himself. It's an evidence that other people have impacted us in such a way and have such a meaningful place in our hearts that we want to spend the time to pray for them. Because prayer at its root is conversation. It's not the correct combination of just the right theological terms or phrases or ideas. It is the simple cry of a child to his parent. And in this moment, Paul's prayer is for these people that he loves. He prays that their love would abound in knowledge and discernment. Now that might strike our ears as strange. Why specify those two particular things? One, they sound similar to one another. And two, when you're talking about all this yearning and affection and all of these ideas, knowledge isn't the first thing that comes into our minds. But the word that's translated knowledge in this text refers to the intimate knowing of God himself. It's the idea of the way that a husband and a wife would know one another, that there is nothing hidden, that there's intimacy and openness and revelation within the context of that marriage, that there is nothing held back, that there is a depth of relationship that's happening. And then he says, discernment. 
Now, discernment is a hard word to define because there's all kinds of different contexts in which you might apply that word, but discernment for our purposes tonight is God-given insight that is revealed by the Spirit and in line with the Word. I wish I knew to whom I could attribute this quote, but I remember hearing one time, somebody said, and this was, it was something like this, somebody said, discernment is knowing what to do or to think in the 90% of life that the Bible doesn't address. And here's what they mean by that. By that, they don't mean that the Bible is somehow insufficient, excuse me, insufficient or unable to handle every element of our life, but what, what they're saying is there's all kinds of decisions that we have to make day in and day out where we can't turn to a chapter or verse and figure out what it is we're supposed to do. And most often the struggles that we have, if we're talking about true struggles of the heart, we're not really struggling with the idea of knowing whether something is evil or good. Those kinds of things happen, but they tend to be pretty clear-cut. No, most often for the Christian, the struggle we have is choosing between what is acceptable and what is best. Between choosing what is permissible and what is best. So for instance, think about the kind of discernment that it takes to determine whether or not you should date or marry someone. Think about the discernment that it takes as a parent to know which means are most appropriate to discipline your child. Think about the everyday discernment that we have, to, we have to exercise as to whether or not we should take a certain job. See, the Bible gives broad principles for how to think about these categories, but it is only by being inundated with his word and listening to the Holy Spirit and resting in the sovereign love of God that you will have discernment, that ability to distinguish between what is permissible and what is best for your life. And so he says to the church, my prayer for you is that as you read the word and know the word and spend time with God, that your hearts would be so, so in tune with his will that you would begin to discern rightly what he has for your life. And finally, he prays in verse 10, that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now that's a sermon all in itself. But the idea behind it is this, that by living in greater knowledge of Jesus and exercising discernment in your lives, that you may be pure and blameless. In other words, that you would begin to grow in righteousness the big theological term for it is sanctification, and all that means is that day by day, moment by moment, you are growing in your understanding, in your relationship, and in your reflection of who Jesus Christ is, that you're becoming more and more like him. That your life would begin to be lived out of the identity that you have in him. And why? Does all of that matter? So that glory and praise could be given to God. See church, the goal of all of this, the desire to be with one another, to live in grace with one another, to part with, partner with one another for the sake of the gospel, to grow in knowledge and discernment, the desire behind all of that is that our lives together would be a testament to the goodness of God and the radical work of grace that he has done in our life.
that people would be able to see us, not just individually, but corporately, not just by ourselves, but together, and say there is something different about the things they value, about their motivations in their living, about the way they treat one another that can only be attributed to God. And in doing so, God makes much of himself. Because any pretense of selfish motivation begins to fall away as we become more like him. So as we think about what it looks like to begin gathering once again, to dive back into the book of Mark next week, Lord willing. By the way, that word Lord willing is something I've grown very fond of over the last few months, not taking anything for granted. Lord willing, as we dive back into his word, would the desire of all of those things, of all of our gatherings, be the increasing intimacy that we have with God, the community that we have with one another, in order to be reflections of his gracious gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you make us a church like the one in Philippi? Lord, not a perfect church, but a church that is dependent on your grace, mindful of our partnership in the gospel, and growing in knowledge and wisdom together. God, help us not to take for granted this local gathering to which we belong, and help us to be aware of the lessons you've been teaching us in these past few months. God, help us to be devoted to one another in prayer. Cause us to be unified and united through the blood of your Son. God, and allow us as well to be gracious around any areas of disagreement. Lord, would we live lives that bring glory and honor and praise to you. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.